You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. There's a psychologist who tells a story about a woman who finds herself after 20 years of marriage having walked through an ugly divorce, which I know is an unusual word to describe that process because uh, you'll never find a beautiful one. Unsure of how to move forward, she decides the best move for her is to dip her toes into the shallow end of the dating scene. You can imagine how she's approaching this night, feeling like a teenager all over again. She got her hair did. She had her nails did. She's texting her friends, excited, more so nervous. She shows up to this upscale bar downtown. After about 10 minutes, the guy looks up from his plate and says, I'm not interested. And he walks out. She's frozen in this moment of rejection. Downcast, dejected, overwhelming sense of hopelessness came over her feeble soul. Yet through her disappointment, she found the slight courage to muster up just enough strength for a phone call to a friend. But to her surprise, she was met with the following words. What did you expect? Your damaged goods with large hips, you have nothing interesting to say. Why would a successful and handsome guy go out with a loser like you? I wonder if we'd be less surprised if we knew that voice didn't come from a friend, but instead from that lady herself. See, sometimes the loudest voice can be our own. It's not one that we should be listening to. Truth is, there's a constant stream of voices coming at us, but they're not always launched from a secular viewpoint. Shoot, they may even seem positive. Some of them can be masked in religious jargon. God's word tells us the inability to sift through those voices is a sign of immaturity in the Christian faith. So this morning, here's what we want to accomplish. My hope and prayer is that we would all be able to better identify, listen to, and obey the only voice that matters. If you have a Bible, you know we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As you turn there, I'll give you just a brief background leading up to the passage. Reader's Digest version helps us to understand the historical context of what's going on in the passage, give us a better understanding to gain insight as to what Paul's talking about. Paul the Apostle planted the church at Corinth in Acts chapter 18. He spends about a year and a half there with these people, and then boom, the Spirit of God carries him away. Several years pass by. He's in Ephesus, and he gets word that there's some heated quarrels going down in the church back at Corinth. So he does what all of us would do, what every good Christian does when conflict or drama arises he writes a letter. And the purpose of his letter is twofold. First, 
to address the quarreling that's causing division in the church. And second, prepare the church for a future visit. (laughs) He's like, as if the letter won't be enough, I'll be there in person to handle this business. But there's several issues causing division. That's why Paul dedicates four chapters to what's going on, to this issue of division. He's saying, it's a serious problem. Here's what God says about it in Proverbs 6, verse 19. Sowing discord among the people is an abomination to God. That's a big deal because the church is the bride of Christ. That word division is actually translated as furrows. I didn't know what a furrow meant, so I looked it up. It's a long, narrow trench created by plowing. They were dug to help with irrigation. Basically picture those long ruts that you see in a field that separates the soil. Paul contrasts that idea of division with the idea of being united in these first few chapters. Matter of fact, the term perfectly united is actually tied to the book of Mark in chapter 1, verse 19, where it refers to the mending of nets. When Jesus called his first disciples, they were mending their nets. How interesting. I would say we can make more disciples and we can make better disciples if the nets of our church are mended properly. It is interesting for me to think about, though, like how did Paul hear about this? Like social media wasn't, wasn't going down. Like no one got in his DMs and said, hey, bro, there's some issues over at Corinth. No one had a Facebook status posting about all the drama. There was no tweets or retweets, no Snapchat filters. There was no phone calls. So how did Paul hear about this? Well, in chapter one, verse 11, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you. (laughs) Can you imagine this scene for just a moment? Like there's a letter written by an apostle, an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, who actually planted the church and they're reading it in front of everybody and they get to that portion of the letter. We heard about this stuff going on from Chloe and her people. I picture Chloe in the fourth row, like trying to hide, you know? If you're a millennial, just picture the Homer Simpson meme where he hides into the bushes. Like that's, that's what's happening right here. We need more Chloe's in the church. People not afraid to address conflict, amen? If you didn't amen, you could be the one Chloe's referring to, I'm just saying. Chapter three, verse one, let's go. But brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people. Okay, in order, we're gonna walk through this passage together this morning. In order for us to understand what he means by spiritual people, because I think that many of us hear that term and that phrase automatically elicits other thoughts about what it means to be spiritual. Maybe a little mysticism, maybe a little traditionalism. So let's kind of clarify what he means as he uses that word in the first few chapters. Basically, Paul has painted in chapters one and two an oversimplified version of Christianity. So simple that he places every person in the church in one of two categories. He says, you're either a spiritual person or you're a natural person. In chapter two, verse six, Paul writes, there's a wisdom that comes from God. And in verse 15, he says, those who receive it are spiritual. In verse 14, He says those who reject the cross and reject the things of God are foolish, thus labeling them the natural man. So essentially he's saying you're either a spiritual person or a natural person. 
you're either a spiritual person who's mature, that, that, that is a believer who loves God and treasures his character, that yearns for his felt presence. You're capable of assessing spiritual things. Or you're a natural person, meaning literally you're a fool. Chapter 1, verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The problem with his contrast is he's left out other categories of people. He's made such a black and white distinction by doing that. That he's leaving people in the church, probably in panic mode as the letter's being read out loud. I mean, just picture that moment. You got people whispering to their neighbor with an elbow. Hey, bro, you think I'm in the spiritual category? I don't know, man. Last night you seemed pretty natural. You know, they're trying to figure out where do I fall? Where do I stand? So Paul to ease the tension introduces a third category here in chapter three. He says, I didn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Another way of phrasing that would be to say it this way. You are you were Christians who are fleshly. So now we have three categories. The natural person who has no spiritual life does not love God. They might know about God, but they don't know God or they reject him. They don't view the gospel of Jesus Christ as majestic and life-changing. The spiritual person who is mature in Christ, who is so led by the Holy Spirit that he or she can receive biblical truth in any arena. Now, there's a third group that Paul says, well, they're not natural, but they certainly aren't spiritual. Let's call them infants in Christ. The term can literally be translated babies. Something everyone in this room needs to figure out this morning is which group you're in and what do you need to do about it? Elsewhere in the Bible, though, the term infants in Christ is actually taken um, in a good sense. Uh, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, believers are actually exhorted to be like newborn babes. Jesus says in Luke chapter 18, unless you come to me like these little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. But in Paul's case, he uses it in a much different sense. At this particular point in the letter, he's not telling them you're infants. He's saying, when I first met you, I addressed you as babes, meaning when you first came to faith in Christ Jesus, in the early days of Acts 18, when I was with you, there were signs of spiritual life. In chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, they were saved. Later in verse 6, he affirms, the testimony about Christ was affirmed among you. Later in chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says, when I preached Christ, you believed so in the early days of the church, Paul actually spoke to them as if they were in Christ. But even though he treated them as being in Christ, he still called them fleshly. What does that exactly mean? It means that after someone is converted to Christ, he or she will not usually enter into a deep and mature walk with God immediately. See, when the Holy Spirit drops a bomb in our hearts, the old us is destroyed. Galatians 5 would use the word crucified. We've crucified the flesh. 
And then a new life begins after that point. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 describes this person in Christ as a new creation. So someone of the flesh has been made new, but they have a ways to go in order to wean themselves off the baby food. Verse 2. This is why Paul says, I didn't start you on solid food. You weren't ready for it. Instead, we got you started on that milk. Now, why is it that they're unable to start with solid food? It's pride. John Piper describes it this way. The spiritual organ that properly digests solid food is humility. As long as a person is still largely influenced by a spirit of self-exaltation, he is not able to digest solid food because the throat of pride is too narrow to handle it. So then what's the milk? It's simply teaching that's designed to get the proud sinner on the path of humility and hope. It's the message of the cross. It's Christ crucified. So what does solid food look like? Well, he continues. Solid food is not for smart people. It's for humble people. People who have stopped pursuing the pleasures of self-confidence, self-exaltation, and self-determination. People who now want only to boast in the Lord and give him all the glory for whatever good there is in the world and in their lives. See, the one who is living in humility can point all things back to Christ, seeing clearly his sufficiency for all things. Colossians 1, for from him, through him, and to him are all things. And it's not just memorizing that verse saying, amen, because it sounds good. It's treasuring it because you can literally see your life in no other light. It's seeing his greatness, his goodness, his graciousness, and his gloriousness in all circumstances. The person who can eat solid food allows everything in their life to first pass through that lens. Author Michael Green gives us an analogy of the newfound Christian life as a cyclist who takes their journey up their first hill. Eager to hit the top, all the while thinking, I can't wait to look over at the bottom because I'm gonna go down pedalless. That once he gets to the top, he can freewheel down the other side. But it's not until he reaches the top that his task has only just begun. Because the road beyond the first hill has even steeper ones. And still even steeper ones. See, faithful Christian living becomes increasingly more difficult and more demanding. Being a mature Christian is the furthest thing from a downhill ride. And Paul's about to take the Corinthians over that first hill. He addresses the church in these first two verses in past tense. They get to the hill, and now he switches to present tense. Because in verse 3, he says, Even now you aren't ready, because you are still of the flesh. Ouch! That's not good. He says there's jealousy and strife among you. That's just proof that you're of the flesh. Self-centeredness is at the heart of fleshly behavior. Jealousy is the attitude. Strife is the action that results from it. One is the inner condition 
The other is the outward expression of it. Paul's essentially saying this. Jealousy and strife are evidence of an immature Christian. Now in verse four, to better help us understand what he means by that, Paul moves from a general state to a specific state. If someone's ever called you out on something, you know there's an immaturity in you, in me, if that response is met with a defense mechanism or, or inquiring as to uh, provide a specific reason of when that happened as opposed to a humility that says, I'm sorry, as opposed to a humility that seeks reconciliation and to mend the relationship. You, you want to prove that you are in the right. You want to justify your doing. You want to search for every little detail in that circumstance as to why what they're saying is not true. And Paul knows they're thinking that because they're immature, which is why he goes from general and go ahead and jumps into a specific because they're like, what do you mean? Why are we immature? I'll tell you why. Here's an example in verse 4. When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? Okay. To understand what's happening culturally in and around the church, let's just take a moment to kind of walk through that. Surrounding cities around Corinth wanted to aspire to be like Corinth or people wanted to move to the city because of the pervasive Roman culture and how influential it was. I mean, it's kind of like everyone and their dog wants to move to Texas. Can you blame them? You know? I'm probably gonna get an email from someone from California. Our landmass is bigger. See, the ambitions for social status in this culture were so strong that it began seeping into the church. Sound familiar to anyone? Social status. Ah, don't get the youth guy started this morning. FYI, we're gonna do a handful of parent nights in the fall talking about social media, porn, and identity. And so if you're interested, please email me. We'd love to add you to our summer dialogues going forward so we can begin walking through these issues together. Have you ever known someone that felt they deserve something from the church due to their social status? I should have been ahead of this committee because I've been coming here for 20 years. And you're like, yeah, but you have no experience. Or yeah, but you, don't, you can't articulate the gospel. Or yeah, but you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan. Like it makes no sense. <laughs> I saw a guy stand up to a pastor one time and yell, I'm a deacon, so I'll be making this decision. What? Bro, you don't even know what deacon means? It means to be a servant. So I I'm not a pastor. Let's just clarify. If you go on the website, it says Jeff Garner, student minister. I'm a deacon. My role is to serve the body of Christ well. I, I'm, I'm not an elder or a pastor who makes decisions on behalf of the church and, and casts the vision to lead us in a direction towards where God wants us. My role is to submit to that leadership and in doing so, serve the church well. I'm sure many of us have seen similar scenarios play out in a church but social status was such a big deal in the Roman culture, it greatly affected the people in the church. Here's one way that played out. Paul, Paul's role, not only as a preacher, but as an apostle, a visible witness to the person of Jesus Christ, was brought into question 
due to the expectations of the educated elite. In other words, let me explain that. The culture surrounding them was such that there were these people known as the sophists of the day who prided themselves on being good orators of, of, of whatever topic of conversation they found themselves in. Matter of fact, presentation was more important than content. So the way they presented themselves, the way they engaged the audience with their eyebrow lifts and their inflections of voice and, and the tones that would sway you into their thinking, they, they prided themselves on that. Matter of fact, there was a Roman orator historian, Favorinus, who visited Corinth in the second century, and he wrote this. These people have a certain love about public speaking. It reminds me of a time I was in college, my fifth year, victory lap, and uh, I, had, I had a new roommate, and uh, we couldn't be more polar opposite from each other. Um, if we watched a movie or a show, I wanted everything to blow up for 90 minutes, okay? If he watched it, he wanted to be engaged intellectually, okay? And so one of the shows he put forward that we would begin watching together uh, was a miniseries called John Adams, okay? Now, he, he, I was, at first I was a little taken back, and I was like, John Adams? Like, the second president, John Adams? He's like, yes. I'm like, you mean like it's set against the backdrop of the 18th century, John Adams? Increasing excitement. Yes. I'm like, okay, whatever. So we get into this show, and surprisingly, all the critics say, man, the way they portray this show is an accurate reflection of actually his life and what was happening in the country at that time. And I was fascinated. Whenever he would leave his home, in conversations with his wife and enter the public sphere, especially the sphere where policies were being made and congressmen gathered, everything changed. Picture a three-piece suit, it's like a nine-piece suit. Getting decked out with like white female stockings and buckled shoes and frilled pants and a robe and a suit. And then to top it off, put on a white wig because it resembled, um, I don't know, that you were smart or important. And so all these dudes are wearing white wigs and his speech is what blew me away. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> welcome to the gathering of Congress. We here in Dubai declare a state of celebration. We will put forth for this country at this time. I'm like, the last scene, you were like talking to your wife like, hey, babe, what's up? And he walks into the public sphere, and it's this orator. It's the, the way he draws them in. If I can use this language, I'm going to sway you with how I present my argument. That's what's going on with these fools. Paul's over here like, seriously, bro? Okay, um, Christ saved me, and I just want to talk about the cross. That's why in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit's power. The reason for that is so that our faith won't be put into the hands of men, but into the power of God. Church members were placing their faith in Christians instead of Christ. 
He uses the terminology, I follow so-and-so. I follow that person. Another way of wording that is to say, I belong to this person. To follow someone in the Roman culture was to dedicate yourself to their teachings. Often people would be referred to as belonging to a teacher. So in many cases, there were actually slogans found in excavations that were carved in bronze that read, I belong to Aphrodite, essentially signifying that an individual had given himself or herself to that goddess. So it seems as if these slogans in the culture, I follow, I belong to, are now being embedded and adopted into the church and into their religious language. So Paul lists those different leaders. He names himself. In chapter one, he mentions a guy named Cephas. That's just Peter. Here in this passage, he says, Apollos. Who's Apollos? He was a Jew from Egypt, described in Acts 18, verse 24, as learned and eloquent. The brother knew what he was doing. He could speak and hang with the best of them. There were different groups in the church who were more determined to support their own theological position instead of being united, mended with Christ. Just as encouragement, the message this morning is more preemptive than reactive, but I think it should be a strong warning for all of us. It's easy to fall into the trap of preferring one leadership style over another. Perhaps one individual's preaching speaks more directly to us. Or another has a pastoral care that is more appealing to the soul. Split allegiances divide a community of believers. And can we just have this moment as a church today? Our commitment is to Jesus Christ. Say it with me out loud. Our commitment is to Jesus Christ. One of the ways we can support the mission of the church is to support the mission of preaching. I mentioned earlier that preaching has been a grace from God for several centuries in the life of the church. If you want to be a church planting church, hear me out on this one. If we want to be a church planting church, one of the godliest things you can do is sit through a mediocre sermon. Rodney's not going to preach 45 to 50 times a year. He's not going to do it. And one of the most immature things a church can do is not show up based on who's preaching. And this extends into the arena of podcasting as well. I'm more of a Tim Keller guy. No. I'm more of a Mark Dever kind of a guy. No, I'm more of a so-and-so kind of a guy. To the millennials in the room, especially the older ones, Matt Chandler's not your pastor. It, it, let me just take a moment there, if I can, just to, to just take a brief few seconds to walk through what I'm talking about. Unless you're a covenant member of that church or this church, he's not your pastor, he's not your pastor. That's of an extreme advantage to each of you. Because your pastor knows your name in the context of the life that you live. He knows when you walk out this door what your biggest struggle is. And he cares about shepherding your heart. There's a growing movement of the online church. Seems like an oxymoron to me. I'm just going to stay home today. Long as I podcast the message, I'm being fed properly. 
Part of eating solid food is committing yourself to being in consistent, biblical, authentic community with other believers. You can't be about Jesus and not be about his bride. You don't get the both and. One comes with the other because when Jesus looks at you, he sees righteous and spotless and he loves you and he can't wait to meet with you. So there's a disconnect if that's how we're approaching the way that we feed ourselves, the way that we're growing in faith and understanding with Christ. John Piper says, pastors aren't called to be celebrities. They're called to be waiters. That's servants. People don't brag about servants. When's the last time you saw someone on the setup team, 6 a.m.? Feel free to join us, by the way. <laughs> Saying, man, have you seen the way Jerome sets up that pipe and drape? It's glorious. <laughs> and then someone else comes in and says, are you kidding me? Do you not know, Greg? Do you see all the Bibles and pens under your seat? That is service. People don't brag about that. We don't, we don't go to lunch talking about how great the setup crew is. You should, because they're phenomenal. But we don't do that. In this analogy, pastors are not the honored guests. They're not the head of the table. They're not the owner of the house. They're not the chefs cooking the food. They're waiting on tables. And he says, you sound really silly when you elevate that guy to a godlike status. Let me ask you this. How do your convos go on the way home from church? Man, I just love the way that he delved into the theological realm of blank. Man, I love the way that he exposits this, this passage of this. Or, man, his passion really speaks to me. Or the sermon was so engaging and good. No. Let me clarify, it's not wrong to thank someone for a message that communicates to you a truth that actually brings about transformation. Praise God for encouragement and exhortation in a church. But our hope in not just going to church, but being the church should be for us to leave this room saying, wow, Jesus looks really good. is awesome. The waiter may be charming and courteous or could be crabby and inattentive as he delivers your message. But if the food gives life and joy, ultimately, the substance is what matters. You don't go to a restaurant because you think, no, we're not going there. The food's great there. I'm going to the horrible place because the service is incredible. No, you, your first priority is the food is really good. Paul and Apollos are not saviors. Rodney Hobbs is not our savior. Ryan Kearns and Jimmy Needham, they're not the gospel. They're not the Holy Spirit. They're not your source of life because they're not God. They're waiting tables. Hi, my name's Jeff. How can I serve you this morning? And the faith that increases in us happens as a result of what the Lord does through them. That's why in verse five, servants through whom you believed. 
God uses preachers and communicators and other influencers to act as a canal, not a spring. They're not the source of life. They're a conduit to get you from point A to point B. So don't think of them as originators because we don't originate. The B.D. on Yawable, a, a, a pastor, says, the best preachers are plagiarists. All they really do is tell you what God's already said. In verse 5, it says, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. They were, they were bragging about the people that would respond a certain way as opposed to when this person preached versus when this person preached. And Paul's like, hey, the Lord assigns those responses of faith if they're genuine. The Lord gives faith to whom he wants when Billy Graham preaches a crusade or if Jeff Garner preaches in a backyard. Here's what Paul's saying. If you think that your increase in faith stems from the work of one of these men, then you don't understand how faith comes about. Yeah, you came to faith through Paul or through Apollos, but God gave you that faith. God assigned a particular response to you by using that person as what we call instruments of grace. One of the false teachings that's not just crept into the Christian culture, but flooded it, is this idea. The genuineness of your faith is defined by the experience you have upon meeting God. I remember a phase in life where everyone and their uncle's dog would articulate their testimony as best they could in this light. I was this bad. I was really bad. And now... I'm really good. I mean, I've heard evangelists come in and describe in detail the most horrific situation you could possibly imagine. I was six years old, raising my five sisters. And it was then that I came clean from my alcohol addiction. Like, what? <laughs> it was always stories like those that made me feel that in order to be genuine, I need to go do drugs for a week. The idea that we need radical and extreme as opposed to the mundane and the ordinary, that's a man-centered thought, not a God-centered thought. You ever hear this phrase from someone? My testimony is just not like yours. And I'm like, well, yeah, God reveals his character to, to everyone in different ways because he's infinite. Isn't that awesome? I'm like, no, that's not what I mean. I'm like, I know. Because <laughs> I know what's coming next. No. I mean, like, my testimony isn't as powerful as yours. <sighs> what? If that's your line of thinking, hear me out. You might not have a testimony. There's nothing more powerful than being brought back from death to life. Like, can you be, can you be even more dead? Well, that person's more dead than that person. <laughs> Doctor, he doesn't have a pulse. Does he have a negative pulse? Like, you can't, you can't. <laughs> The greatness of God's miracle is not dependent upon human circumstances. Hear me out this morning. If God has implanted the seed of faith in any of your hearts, rejoice. The goal of a testimony is to make God look really good. And he looks really good, not because of how good you are, but because of how horrible you are. Isn't that awesome? 
We're going to Panama in a few weeks on an international mission trip, 35 students and leaders, and we have training and preparation for this trip. And uh, every time we gather, uh, recently we've had our students, uh, they have to be able to, with another partner, share their testimony in less than one minute. Basically, here's the thought process. We call it a 45-second elevator story. You get on an elevator, someone walks on with you, bawling their eyes out, is there a God? Floor three, doors closed, you have one minute, what are you gonna do? Doors open, they walk out, what was said? Do you look really good or have you exalted the name of Jesus? I was in college, I was saved, I was thriving in my faith, I was growing. I literally at one point, it was like Saul on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter nine, the next day I was a different person. I was grabbing fools, shoving Jesus down their throats, okay? I'm like, I gotta tell you about Jesus. And they're like, please don't eat me. And I would, I, would, I would walk through my passion with people about who Jesus is and tell them why I loved him and, 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 and talk about what he wants for their life. And, and there, there wasn't time for tactfulness with the zeal the Lord had produced in me in this time of my life. Well, one time this guy came up to me and he was questioning my, my story, not, not, not my story, he, He was questioning my salvation. And I didn't realize it until about an hour and a half into the conversation. We're we're in the lobby of the dorm and he sat me down late at night because he really wanted to have a talk with me. Jeff, I see your passion and it's for the Lord, but, and he beat around the bush. I'm like, just say it, what are you trying to say? He's like, well, man, when you talk to God, have you ever broken out in a sweat? I'm like, do you you know me? Like, look at me right now. I'm like, he's like, no, no, I mean like, um, you ever had like a private prayer language where you said something and uh, you didn't know what it meant? It's like, it's in those moments when your body does it. He's trying to tell me, in order to be saved, I have to have a certain experience that looks a certain way. And at this time, I would say, I was, I was, I was sucking on milk, okay? So I, I would say I was of the flesh. I was growing in Christ, drinking milk. I was discouraged. I, was, I wasn't scared, but I was like, I was... I was distraught. Like, is someone questioning that I'm saved? So I go to my hall director. It's 1 a.m. I bang on his door. He's married. He has two kids. He doesn't care. And so he comes to the door. It's a Christian university. When a guy says, hey, let's talk about salvation at 1 a.m., you're going to say yes. So he comes out in the lobby, and we talk for like an hour, hour and a half, and I'm walking through my struggles. And he was gracious enough. His name was Michael Cox. We couldn't have been more different. Let me explain it this way. He's currently the research analyst and adjunct professor for bioethics at Trinity University. I don't know what that means, but it sounds cool. (laughs) He was an encouragement to me, and I'm grateful. One of the things he said to me, he said, said, Jeff, the the genuineness of your faith is measured by your faithfulness. I was like, seriously, bro? That's like saying you know you're fast if you have a lot of speed. Like I was trying to process that. But he was gracious enough to walk me through that. And he showed me that God was the cause of my faith, not some set of external circumstances. Nothing you do or attempt to conjure up helps speed that process up. You can turn the heat up in your house and get really sweaty, put a crucifix in your lap and say, should have bought a Honda 10 times fast, but it's not gonna change anything inside of your heart because we can't bring about that change. That's what Paul's saying. Ephesians 2 says, if you have faith, guess what? Was it from you? It was a gift from God. Nothing that you earned, you certainly couldn't earn it. In verse 6, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He's saying the same thing but different words. The life and growth of the plants, it's not found in the planting and the watering. It's found 
It's out in the Lord. It's like me coming on stage and having a pot of soil. Okay, and I'm going to explain to you how to plant a seed. Okay, take some dirt, you spread it, you drop a seed, you cover it. Drop the mic. That's how you plant a seed. Okay, and I walk off and you guys watch me do it. But then sometime later, Jimmy Needham walks out here. Jimmy has his pot of water. He sees the seed's been planted. He's like, holla. He starts pouring the water on the soil. We come back in a couple weeks. <gasps> there's, there's, there's a leaf. There's greenery. And someone goes, I'll tell you why. You see the way Jeff planted that seed? Eloquence. <laughs> and someone else is like, you idiot. No one waters like Jimmy Needham. And they go back and forth and back and forth. And Paul's like, here's what Paul's saying. You babies, you don't even understand how faith comes about. He's like, stop, stop sipping on milk. That's what you want to choose to waste your time with. Now, I know it's funny, but, but some of us are some of us so different. If Rodney Hobbs was removed from your life, what would your relationship with Jesus look like? If you could no longer podcast a sermon, would you know how to connect with God? If this building burned down tomorrow, the city declines the zoning approval on our new land, and Rodney goes into the essential oil business. <laughs> Do you know how to engage the Lord? Is Rodney the way you relate to Jesus? Is Stonegate the way that you relate to Jesus? Are we focusing on the gifts? Or are we treasuring the giver? What if you're called the Madagascar, home of the largest cockroach in the world, with no internet, and you don't speak the language? What do you do? How will you engage with Jesus? Because verse 7 says, it's not he who plants, and it's not he who waters. It's only God that gives the growth. Praise God for the influential voices in all of our lives this morning. Seriously, I'm grateful for many men who've walked me through the doctrines of the faith, who've exhibited grace to me time and time again, who in my pride have walked me through and shown me and pointed me to my sin. I am eternally grateful for those influences, and I crave a good sermon just as much as the next guy. But is Jesus' voice the loudest? Because his is the only one that matters. When your life falls apart, is his voice loud enough? Whose voice is the loudest? When it's Monday morning and you're weary and exhausted. Whose voice is the loudest, mom? When you're trying to get three kids out the door, you've already spent 90 minutes with two poopy diapers, you get to the car and forget your keys. Whose voice is the loudest? When you've already graduated and you have no idea what's next and you find yourself questioning your future, whose voice is the loudest? In John chapter 10, Jesus says, my sheep will know my voice. Listen to that voice. Treasure that voice. Love that voice, because that voice is the only one that matters.
Let's pray. Father God, we want you to know, yeah, as a father, wow, like what a beautiful name that we can call you that. Knowing that you've adopted us as your sons and daughters to be a part of your eternal family. So Lord, we, we address you as such this morning. A really good God. So Lord, we just wanna first, just, would you cultivate in us a spirit of gratitude? for both who you are and for what you've done and for what you're doing in us and, and, and for what you're gonna do. Lord, we, we just want you to know that, that we're in need. I, I pray that if someone in here feels the opposite, God, that you would, the Holy Spirit would drop that bomb on their heart, that you would show them and each of us how in need of you we are and not, not just for salvation, but for us to have a lens to see the gospel and how it affects every part of who we are. Lord, we want to thank you for your word this morning. God, we, we just want you to know that we want to treasure it. We, 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 we yearn for you to produce the fruit in us, to help us get to a point where, where the narrow throat of pride is widened in our humility. We can treasure solid food. But thank you for the reminder this morning that our faith is not put in the hands of men, but through the power of God. Lord, I pray this morning for the person who is the natural man, who would say, I don't know God, I don't love him. And whether or not there's a desire there, I pray you would plant one there. That you would do what Paul writes to the, the church at Ephesians in 118, that you would awaken their hearts. pray that you would show them how good you are, that you are the spring. You are more than a canal. You are the source of life. You are the bread of life. You tell us in John 10.10 10, that you have come that we may have life and have it to the fullest, have it abundantly. That's phenomenal news to each of us this morning. Help us to treasure you as the spring Help us to not elevate the gifts above the giver, but to run to you with open arms, desiring to be fed, knowing that all source of hope and joy and peace and love are rooted in you. Lord, would you please continue to mend your church, unite your church, raise up Chloe's that are not af afraid to Speak truth and love and address conflict that can cause division. I pray that this community in the region of South Dallas would look at the people of God at Stonegate and see Jesus. We pray those things this morning in the name of your son, the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus, all God's people said. 
Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.